How do we rethink the most polluting plastics and create healthy, regenerative alternatives? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore how circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen. Rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll hear from entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our monthly edition of Circular Insights. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the Circular Economy podcast. In today's episode, I'm talking to Simon Hombersley, the CEO of Zampler. Zampler, spelt X-A-M-P-L-A, is a spin-out from Cambridge University that's created the world's first plant protein material for commercial use, pioneering the replacement of the most polluting plastics with natural alternatives. Zampler's ambition is to become the leader in natural polymers, and it's been developing its natural polymer resin over the past 15 years. The polymer, which Zampler describes as a breakthrough material, performs just like synthetic polymers, but decomposes naturally and fully without harming the environment at the end of life. Zampler is the first UK university spin-out to be awarded B Corp status, and is working on new technologies with multinational companies, including Britvic, Gusto and Croda. Sometimes it's easy to think that we should just ban problematic plastics, but some of these are providing useful benefits. Simon tells us more about Zampler's mission to replace the most polluting plastics, explaining what kind of products they're focused on, and why there are benefits to using polymers in these kind of applications. Simon tells us about the polymer applications they've developed so far, what sorts of products they're used in, and explains more about the biological feedstock Zampler uses, including food-grade inputs for those polymers designed to literally be consumed in our food. You might be shocked to hear about some of the ways plastics are embedded into food, personal care and household cleaning products. It goes way beyond the packaging. We hear more about the origin of the ideas underpinning Zampler's scientific approaches, and Simon explains how Zampler fledged from a research project into a company. Simon also shares some of Zampler's plans for the next generation of plant-based plastics, what kind of problems they're aiming to solve, and the types of feedstocks they're prioritising. We discuss key principles for making sure these solutions are better for people and planet, including the importance of regenerative feedstocks to avoid yet more land conversion and deforestation for agriculture. Simon gives us insights into the local-for-local model Zampler is aiming to develop, with locally relevant materials that stay in local closed loops. I really enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation. Let's meet Simon, and I'll be back afterwards with what I took away from our discussion. Simon, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. And we're not too far apart today because you're in in or near Cambridge, I believe. Absolutely, yes. 
perhaps we could start by asking you to unpack Zampler's mission for us. We are a mission-led business. We're a B Corp, actually. We're the UK's first university spin-out to become a B Corp. And we have a very simple mission. That's to reduce plastic pollution. Uh, And specifically within that, we're focused on the most polluting plastics. So these are single-use plastics and microplastics. These are the kind of plastics that that always leak into the environment. They can't be be captured typically within uh, a systems approach, within recycling and so forth. So so that's that's our focus, the most polluting plastics. Mm, That's that's a really evocative phrase, isn't it? And I think a few episodes ago, we heard from Maria uh, Vesterbos of the Plastic Soup Foundation, and she's really exercised about microplastics particularly in cosmetics and things where we perhaps wouldn't expect them. Uh, not micro and, beads, but microplastics. So, and yeah. Plastic Soup uh, are doing a lot of really good work on the, on the health impacts of plastics. There's an increasing development in those fields of the understanding of not just that these plastics are bad for, for the planet and other creatures. They're bad for us. They really are. And, and the evidence is now there for that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that the science is now starting to focus in on that. And I know um, somebody once told me years ago that uh, in pharmaceuticals, uh, drugs are generally withdrawn after about 10 years because that's that's when the, the research on the <laughs> on the, the long term side effects uh, becomes clear. So um, and I think just this week, somebody posted something about um, the dangers of reusing um children's toys um because i guess 10 or 15 years ago in plastic toys and so on there were types of plastic or additives bpa and and all that kind of stuff that's now been outlawed so yes um lots of things to um to think about when we're deciding to use plastics so can you tell us a bit more about the kinds of products that zampler has um and how it's avoiding fossil fuel based chemicals the kind of products that we're working on as, as sort of launch products are uh, two examples I'll, I'll talk about one is a, a single use plastic packaging application and the other is a microplastic uh, replacement or a microcapsule actually in that particular case so so we have developed uh, well let me start with the problem so convenience consumers love convenience and brands love giving consumers what they want. So this is one of the reasons that we have so much single-use plastic in our lives is because actually consumers want it and they value it and it brings hygiene and portion control. And in some cases, you can argue that actually these plastic packaging solutions are actually good for the planet in terms of of reducing food waste and so forth. So so this is why brands use uh, single-use plastic and flexible films and sachets. But the problem is those are the most polluting plastics. You can't economically recycle a a flexible film. And furthermore, brands today are beginning to respond to consumer pressure. They're beginning to understand that consumers, particularly younger consumers, are making choices about what products they buy based on the plastic content. And that's a serious driver in all of this sector, which is really important. So for our launch product, what we've developed is a cookable, edible replacement for plastics, uh, which we are using to wrap a stock cube. So the stock cube comes to the consumer. The consumer, instead of unwrapping it and throwing away either tin foil or a, a piece of plastic, they simply they can rinse it under the tap. They throw the whole thing, including its uh, wrapper, into the pot, give it a stir, and they eat their own packaging. 
Now, that's a product we've launched with Gusto, the home recipe kit company here in the UK, uh, and we're now rolling that out. And that's a really interesting example because it's actually what we're trying to do as a company is, is excite and innovate and work with brands to, to, to give new formats and new exciting consumer experiences. And obviously, the result of that is if we rolled out all across Gusto's range alone, uh, that would be about 17 tonnes of plastic replaced per year. So significant volumes of these materials can be replaced in an exciting and innovative way. And the other area that we're working on is uh, microplastics in particular. Uh, and this is much more an area where there's regulatory drivers. So a lot of consumers are not particularly aware of what plastics are in their formulations and personal care products and home care products. So we're working on tiny microcapsules of, of our materials, uh, which cause no harm at all to the planet in terms of pollution, um, but deliver the same, <clears throat> that cause no harm at all to the planet in terms of pollution, but deliver the same product viability and the same product that, that our brands want from us. So that sounds like two really potentially game-changing product developments. And just to come back to the single-use plastic example, the stock cube example, I guess when I'm listening to you describe that, because we're so used to the idea of those coming in petrochemical based plastic packaging um the thought of dissolving it kind of makes makes me inwardly shudder so can you tell us about um you know the basis of of the materials that you're using so that we feel reassured that you know the, the these are things that are, are good to dissolve in our foods not not something that's you know because people are, are aware that biodegradable plastic packaging doesn't mean it's made from bio biomaterial. So biodegradable and, and kind of dissolvable doesn't necessarily mean it's good for you. Absolutely. And and this kind of greenwashing that's been quite prevalent in our space is a real problem for not just us, but the, the whole next generation of these natural materials. So our our products are made from food grade material, the edible ones. We're also working with other areas, but but for the food materials, the materials that we would uh, designed to be eaten by a consumer, they are simply food. They are based on, in that case, is, is pea protein. So we take pea protein, the sort of pea protein you could buy at a, an every, every health food store around the world, uh, and we engineer that with no chemical modification or change at all. Uh, and the result is, is a food. It's, it's just the same as boiling an egg or making jelly. It's a very similar sort of process. Uh, and the materials that, that come out of the end are only 100% plant protein. So, so that's why they are food and edible. But I, I understand your point. And actually, when we did the launch, and we did a lot of consumer testing for that launch, consumers loved it. There was great feedback on that product. But a number of people did feedback and say, it looks a bit too much like plastic. We need to, to change the language of these sorts of materials and products. And we need to change the look and feel of them so that people are very clear that, that what is edible and is a food essentially material versus what is a traditional oil-based plastic. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think changing the language could be essential, couldn't it, to kind of A, stop the greenwashing and the confusion and also to help people request these things and, you know, go onto social media for the brand and say, why aren't you using this material you know not not necessarily a brand name but a descriptor for something absolutely. that yeah absolutely and, and i think that the, the harnessing the power of consumers is absolutely critical to all of this and and it's a, you know it's a key sort of point that the people who care about plastic 
are consumers. Consumers don't buy plastic, mm. you know, apart from cling film or a few examples or my dog poo bags. I very rarely buy plastic, but we use plastic the whole time. It's the brands who have got the power here and who decide what products are put in front of the consumers. But the brands are incredibly sensitive to consumer demand. So the people who've got the power here are actually consumers. But it's unfair to expect a consumer to have a PhD in material science and be able to filter all the greenwash in this space and understand exactly what is a credible or what isn't. So simplicity of language, honesty, transparency, these are really important things that we all need to work together. As I say, particularly our class of materials is natural polymer materials, which are made from things that are found in nature and cause no harm at the end of life. We can work together to communicate effectively why we're not bio-based or biodegradable in that way or bio this or bio that or or based on any of the previous generation of language mm. but it's a big challenge it's a big yeah. challenge for all of us it is a big challenge because even even natural and i might have um told you this story when we talked before but i was helping a um a personal care uh, startup and they were working with a contract manufacturer and we'd given them a list of criteria of you know we want organic where possible and um you know no plastics in the packaging and this that and the other and um so it was kind of you know organic natural ingredients and i had to do the research because everything has to go through legislation in terms of what what descriptors you can apply to what the product does and so i was going through the ingredients list on one of the eu websites and two or three things said well there is a natural version of this but it's very expensive and quite hard to get hold of so mostly this would be synthetic whatever whatever so i wrote to them to say you know can you explain what the source is and where it's from and sure enough they turned out to be synthetic petrochemical based things and so we then went back and said well what about our overriding um you know message of we wanted natural and organic well they said well it is natural you know those fossils were once living things (laughs) (laughs) yes and i I think that fortunately there is a generation of consumers who is much more savvy and and much more motivated to to do that digging but as i say i think it's unfair to put the the pressure on the consumers to make those choices it's it it really is quite difficult we need to help we not just sampler but all companies in the sector and everybody involved in campaigning and so forth need to help bring clarity to this space because obviously there is a, a rearguard action being fought by the fossil fuel industry to protect what is an increasing share of their revenue, actually, over the next few years as, as their fuel element of the oil goes down in percentage terms. The plastics is actually going to increase. So it's increasingly important business for them. And we must remember that the production of plastic is expected to increase over the next 20 to 30 years, not decrease So this is a growing problem or a growing opportunity for the oil industry to continue business as usual. So there is a there is quite a lot going on here, but we can all work together in what is a relatively young field still plant based natural products and materials, a relatively young space still. We can work together to help everybody understand. Actually, if you're a a sustainability consultant or if you're a packaging designer or a brand manager, don't go and look at all of these first generation of materials and have to find out that actually they're chemically modified or they degrade into forever chemicals which get into our bloodstream and cause trouble. Just choose something that looks like a plant, sounds like a plant, and you know when it goes into the soil it's going to cause no harm. It's, it is as simple as that, but there's quite a lot of thicket to cut through to get to that simple story. Yeah, you're right. And not least the power of, of the vested interests in yes. um, petrochemical producers, as you say, who are all banking on 
um, plastic and the recycling of plastic because, of course, that requires even more chemicals and, and energy <laughs> provided yeah. by fossil fuels. So, yeah, they're yeah. really keen on it. So just to come back to the micro capsules, um, can you tell us a bit, you know, kind of bring that to life a bit? Where where would we see those and, um, you know, what are they made from? Well, in our shirts right now, there are tiny micro capsules containing fragrance, which are typically made of melamine formaldehyde. And by tiny, I mean 10, 15, 20 microns across. You can't see them and you can't feel them, but they're in there. Now, they're an incredibly sophisticated piece of technology and they're designed to release the fragrance that the laundry company wants in your clothes to keep your clothes smelling fresh. And at the end of the day, those little capsules, which have given out their fragrance, they get washed out of your clothes when you put them back in the washing machine and a whole new set of them are put back in with the fabric conditioner or the laundry detergent that you put in. Now that usefully the European Union is banning that class of product. They recognize that that is simply a straightforward microplastic pollutant. Uh, it's, a, it's a very straightforward case. And so those are being banned. What we've developed is a replacement for that material, which can be engineered into a microplastic, uh, into a microcapsule, a microparticle, which delivers the same sort of performance. And those capsules are not just in your home care products, they're in shampoos, personal care products, a whole series of products that we use every day and often wash off down the shower without even thinking about it, contain microplastics. And it is one of those sad things because I, I talk about this sometimes with consumer groups uh, and th it's the first time they've heard this and they're shocked mm. because they don't think they're doing anything wrong. They're making choices in their lives all the time where they think they're making the right choice. And this is just something that, that brands need to communicate and to, to solve essentially so consumers can carry on enjoying their, their products. Yeah, it is shocking, isn't it, to find out what's in things. Um, and um, yeah, I'm a kind of... Um, uh, let's look back at, at what we used to do before all this stuff was invented. And I've discovered that um, white malt vinegar, which you can buy in big flagons from our local <laughs> yeah. local independent supermarket, um, is a perfectly good replacement for fabric conditioner. <laughs> <laughs> it so, is yeah. interesting. And, and it's also, but it gives me a little bit of hope because although the plastic problem is huge and it can seem quite insurmountable, this is only one lifetime. You know, we've wreaked enormous harm on our planet from this material, but it is only a lifetime and we can change. And we can change also without losing all the joy and the benefit that comes from this convenience that the plastic provides. So this isn't some sort of hair shirt, let's ban everything approach. Let's just change. We've learned, we understand now the impact of these materials. We need to move on to a next generation uh, and simply change. And, and that's possible. It's feasible. And companies like Zampler, we're obviously not the only ones, are the ones who are delivering those solutions. Yeah, I think it is really exciting. And um, I was talking to a, a future podcast guest, um, Michael Smith from Regeneration VC, and they're mm -hmm. investing in these kind of things as well. Um, yep. And really see biological, biologically inspired solutions using natural materials to avoid um, chemicals and, and uh, you know finishing coatings and all that kind of stuff. As, and in this very, space, yeah. we, we need investors like Michael, who, who's very well formed in this area and, and knows what the right, the right decisions are to make. Because actually, in many cases, we're seeing investors continue to put money into last generation solutions. So they're actually making a problem worse 
rather than solving it, whereas Regeneration VC is a very focused fund with a very specific mission and a very good sort of advisory board who, who can inform and educate. So, so yeah, we need VCs like them. Mm, yeah. I, yeah. And I, and I like your description of last generation solutions. There's some really evocative terminology that can just get people thinking, you know, hang on, am I? <laughs> I you know, I hadn't even thought about that. And once, once their radar's on, for what's get what they're doing wrong now and what the alternatives could be then again the next transformation can be sparked can't it yeah so can we go back to how zampler started where did the idea come from and um you know what's what's the science and and biomimicry biomimicry inspiration behind all of this it's a, it's an interesting story. So our academic founder at the University of Cambridge, I've got uh, two other founders of the business, uh, Thomas Knowles. Um, he is one of the world's leading protein biophysicists. He's working absolutely at the cutting edge of understanding of proteins and how they behave. And about 15 years ago at the university, he asked a very simple question. He said, I wonder how a spider makes silk. Uh, and you'd have thought that such a familiar material, somebody would ask that before. Now, Thomas asked it for the first time, and he spent a long time trying to understand how the, the spider did it. And silk is only made up of proteins, animal proteins, obviously, but nonetheless proteins. And what the spider is doing when it makes silk is it's it's untangling the strings of proteins at a supramolecular level, so not, not at a submolecular level, but a supramolecular, uh, and, and rearranging those proteins into different forms and then spinning a web or, or whatever the, the function is. So once Thomas had spent probably quite a long time working out how that process worked, he then thought, okay, well, I can learn from the spider. We can actually use the same approach that the spider is using to make silk to engineer common, cheap, sustainable plant proteins, one of the widest, most available commodities on the planet, uh, and turn those into useful materials because spider silk is five times stronger than steel. It's an incredibly high performance material, but it's not a chemical, it's not synthetic, it's merely a natural product. And that's what his, Thomas's breakthrough at the university was, and that's the foundation of the science for Zampler. So we've developed that into a scalable process using actually only three ingredients, water, plant protein, and vinegar. Uh, and we turn our plant protein isolated standard, you know, organic, natural, completely basic product into materials that perform like plastic using that process that Thomas developed at the university or, or discovered at the university based on the spider. Mm, that's an amazing story. And it's kind of mind blowing, isn't it? What the, what the spider is able to do. Um, and I think, it, I think biomimicry, you know, there's a lot of development in this whole circular economy space where people have just taken a moment to say, okay, well, if nature does this, what can we learn from that? And you think, why on earth didn't we start at that point? Why on earth did we feel we needed to create an entire new chemical industry to create these products? Why didn't we just work out well, what's, what nature does? Because if nature's doing it, then presumably it's kind of okay for the planet because it'll have been doing it for a lot longer than human beings have been around. And that's what Thomas discovered. And as I say, from a commercial point of view, what, what excites me about this is it's a fundamental piece of research. Sampler is a deep tech business with a patent portfolio and all that, but it's come at exactly the right time. This is a rare case where a fundamental scientist has developed something that solves a problem that is front of everybody's minds right now. It's a, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic example. Yeah, it's just so exciting, isn't it? The the potential for resolving a whole load of of really problematic um, issues and products and 
um, changing the way people are thinking, both in both in terms of waking people up in terms of what's going wrong now and what they don't even know about, like the micro capsules in mm. personal healthcare products, and also opening their eyes to what's possible and getting people inspired and encouraged to start choosing better better ways of doing things or start inventing better ways of doing things. So what plans do you have for the for the next generation of plant-based plastics? Have you got any particular problems that you that you're about to solve or um, exercise to solve? There's there's a few things which stand out for us, and and we, we we're a business. We're we're in the business of making money and and solving problems and so forth. But there is you know we're a B Corp. We're mission led. There are certain things that that we we do that that sort of make us tick. One of those is seed coatings. So 90% of the corn crop in North America goes into the soil with a tiny little plastic capsule around it. And that gives flowability and they often color it so the birds don't eat the seeds and, and you know, it improves yield and they put actives on and so forth. So it's, it's good for farmers, it improves yield. But that, that is literally us turning our soils into plastic. We've been doing it for about 25, 30 years and we can observe the composition of the soil changing. And that's one of those applications you just think, how on earth did anybody think that was a good idea? So what Zampa is doing, we're working with a leading UK uh, company in that sector uh, to manufacture our materials into sea coatings. And obviously we can provide the same function, but our materials are only made from plant protein. So when they go into the soil, they get digested you know, anything, anything on the planet needs protein. So and plant protein is pretty inoffensive to everybody. So, so they simply digest that and there's no harm. Furthermore, actually, the microbes actually benefit the soil and the, and the creatures and so forth. So, so it's a perfect sort of use case. So there are a few of those. And then there are some of the much more bulk volume applications in plastics that we'd recognize. So sort of takeaway cartons and, and all of the applications for flexible films. There are 855 billion single-use sachets produced on this planet every year. It's a, it's a number that's quite hard to get your head around. Uh, and in fact, uh, we don't tend to see it so much on this side of the world because typically we've got decent sort of systems for capturing waste and so forth. Go to a beach in Indonesia. That's where you see feet deep single-use sachets on the beach, all branded, all branded by these major companies. And that's the problem they're seeking to solve. Uh, and that's a solution that we've got for them. Mm. Yeah, there's a big campaign, isn't, isn't there? I can't remember if it's um, uh, Sean Sutherland's plastic. I uh, can't remember what the plastic thing is. Or plastic um, planet, Sean, plastic yeah. planet, or changing yeah. markets. But there's a sac the sachet campaign mm -hmm. yeah. um, to try and get my, th these brands to move away from them. But um, yeah, I, I could um, I could go off on another rant about why those are, are being used and how that how they're kind of um, starting to to draw the next group of consumers into the um, the, the convenience and, and benefits of the brand. <laughs> it's it's something that we're sort of conscious of is is we are working with the world as it is mm. now. You know, if you're in a it, it's it's a, it's it's one of those things, and it's above my pay grade to, to get too involved in this. But, but you know, a one rupee sachet on a, on a street stall in Delhi is how a lot of people get their personal care products. Mm. Uh, and, and I'm not going to sit here and say that's wrong. That's, mm. that's not the right judgment. But what I can say is we've got a way of helping you continue that business model without the pollutant 
and and that's the important sort of solution we're focusing on. But yes, it's it's a very challenging area. All of these, well, as you know, Catherine, from all of your your podcasts, every circular question there's multiple angles to it. There's always consequences. There's always things we need to think in the round in these sorts of areas. Mm. But you're right, though. It does allow. It it takes away the environmentally harmful and and human health harmful effects of those kind of things, um, and gives the big brands a way to buy into a better solution without worrying about the impact on their bottom line. Um, You know, it's this kind of what I see brands doing is, is stuff around new generation materials and more recyclability and so on. What they steer away from is anything that might slow down the rate of production and and consumption. Um, And so, um, to use a phrase that uh, Jeremy Lent used the other the other day on something I was listening to, it's about trying to change the system from the inside, um, and this is this is a really great way to do it, isn't it? Is is providing something that they can build into their existing business model without them having to try and turn the super tanker around and do something completely different that their competitors might not follow. Um, Absolutely, and and. We're a B Corp, so we balance profit and purpose. Uh, and I see no conflict at all between the two in what we're doing, quite far from it. I think there is competitive advantage and product differentiation that can come for brands by choosing materials that are not plastic. I actually think that replacing plastic is a commercial opportunity for brands, not a cost or a burden or a problem they have to solve. And that's what our job is, is to help brands recognize that actually in certain product categories, they can premiumize some quite dull products by making them plastic free. And and we're seeing this with challenger brands all around the world, direct to consumer models, innovative startups that have got a relationship directly with consumers, which is an ethical relationship. The major brands are very threatened by that and, and want a piece of that action. Well, they need volume materials and they need credible solutions, but those solutions are available. Dishwasher tablets is is my favorite example of all of this. Dishwasher tablets are really boring. Nobody gets excited about dishwasher tablets. Um, Now, the the soluble plastic wrap around a typical dishwasher tab is made of PVOH. That is a pollutant. There is debate and argument and fighting around that, but but essentially it's under consultation. We understand that the EU at the moment for a restriction, it is a pollutant, it's made from oil. Um, Now, in my view, the first major brand that puts a product on shelf offering that dishwasher tab in a wrapper, but without oil, without plastic involved, it's going to stand out. They're going to sell massive quantities of that product because it will be differentiated in what is quite a, a sleepy product category. So all of this is an opportunity for businesses. It's not, it, there are challenges, there are all sorts of difficulties as we make this transition over an extended period. But there's a lot of opportunity here commercially for not just us, but for the brands we're working with. Mm. Yeah, and I think... Um... You, it's good to kind of um, uh, talk about the the size of the opportunity, and I guess that brings up the question of, um, you know, thinking thinking of the bigger the bigger picture and the and the bigger system. And I know that some people are worried that a move towards more bio based materials, whether that's in textiles or packaging or whatever, um, could put too much pressure on the on the planet because we what we don't want to do is convert more forests and and um wild areas into agricultural land so are there any key principles that that 
you're using in terms of how you're selecting the feedstocks and whether you're able to to do something that works regenerative alongside food rather than using land that could be grown to used to grow food absolutely and and it's one of our sort of longer term uh, sort of focus areas is how do we ensure that we never get into a battle for resource essentially because because the, the planet has a, a limited quantity of resource i think if we step back i would say that this transition which is a 20 to 30 year transition away from fossil fuels this question will affect everybody in this sector absolutely everybody and we all need to be thinking in the round about how we address it so from zampler's point of view our feedstocks at the moment for our edible products of standard food grade they have to be that they're food products so so that's that's mm. just the way it is um as we move on to things like dishwasher tablets uh, and these non-food applications we're already making uh, our materials from agricultural co-product from waste from existing streams so potato uh, protein is a byproduct of industrial starch production, for instance. We've worked with rapeseed cake, faba bean hull. These are products that typically are lower value for farmers, but have a value and go to animal feed, typically. But sometimes these products are just ploughed straight back into the soil or go to anaerobic digestion, which is doesn't seem a sensible route for something that has a function and, and have a, a value. So in the longer term after that, we're looking at actually alternative crops and something that is always struck me as interesting is 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 one of the problems we have in agriculture uh, from a sustainability point of view as a whole is, is monoculture you know most of the food on this planet is five crops broadly and and within those those strains and variants have been optimized for food production at the cost of requiring all sorts of fertilizers and ir irrigation and so forth there will be any number of variants and varieties of those crops and other crops that have been discarded or are existing elsewhere and used only in small areas, which could be, you know, frost resistant, drought hardy, require no extra irrigation and so forth, but nonetheless produce enough protein or enough valuable material that they could be used for a non-food source such as ours. And, and the flip side of that question, obviously, is a transition away from meat over the next 20 to 30 years. That is a major, major impact on land use, but also farmer incomes. So we see ourselves as part of a solution for farmers making that transition to ensure an, an increase and in offtake for some of the agricultural co-product or lower value products that they're, they're working on at the moment uh, and actually provide them with a base level of income. And that's not just at these sort of global crops, but one of the other principles we have in this area is, is local circularity. There is a major change coming as we move away from oil. We're going to stop thinking of drilling in Saudi, shipping it to somewhere to be cracked, turn into nurdles in North America, to come back to Britain, to be turned into plastic film, to wrap tomatoes in Spain, to come back to Britain, and then to be recycled back in China. That's a, a crazy 20th century model. We want to grow crops locally, process them at a local level with local incomes and, and local jobs, use them in local supply chains, and in an ideal world, plow them back into the same soils they came from in the first place. And that's when you start thinking about the full sort of regenerative effect of what we're doing. So a lot of our crops that we're most interested in are legumes for various reasons, but legumes are nitrogenating crops. They're often grown as cover crop anyway in Northern uh, hemisphere. If farmers can get some sort of offtake for those products, they are more likely to grow them and that may reduce their dependence on chemical fertilizers and so forth. So there is a 
vastly complicated interaction between all the elements of this piece of the puzzle and what a company like Zampler is doing by creating a new material and a, a new source of, of offtake for these farmers is we're changing the game slightly and we need to work through all of those. And honestly, Catherine, I don't have all the answers at this stage, but we are aware, I think, of some of the conversations that we need to have as we grow to scale and to minimise the, the negative impacts and maximise the positive. Mm. Yeah, and there are so many positive aspects that could come from that, aren't there, around more income streams for farmers, localising the whole production cycle. We're starting to realise, aren't we, just how, you know, what a bad idea it can be to end up being dependent for key resources on countries that, you know, <laughs> you're not going to be um, in, in complete agreement with, um, to, put it, to put it mildly. Absolutely. But but it does it does place challenges on the sort of procurement sort of processes of these major customers who are used to buying, you know, vast quantities of product in a standardized format and so forth. So there are challenges in this transition as well. But I completely agree. I think we're we're very aware of security of supply issues in a number of areas, uh, and that local sustainability sort of cases is increasingly understood. I don't think we're there yet for everybody, but I think increasingly it's understood that if you think local, think small, think think what's within you know 20 miles of your plant and what what's the feedstock there and where are the customers there that's a much more sustainable way of approaching these issues mm, some really exciting developments i think to, to come on that that theme um walter Stahl in his book calls it calls it intelligent decentralization mm. um, <laughs> so kind of distributed solutions but accelerated by the use of new technology or new communications and so on um so yeah lots lots of um game-changing opportunities there as well. So, Simon, thinking back on your journey so far in, in, in a circular economy startup, what would, if you were talking to somebody else thinking of going circular or starting something up, what would be the, the top tip that you'd share from your lessons learned? I think my top tip is, is pick your battles. Uh, I think we all want to change the world, but we do it together and we do it by focusing on the things that we know how to do. So in, in Zampler's case, we're a business. We are not trying to uh, persuade any of our customers of an ethical or moral case for doing something. We're giving them solutions that they want. It is as simple as that. And, and when I think about impact and I think about how we make that change in the world, we, we do it by selling product. We do it by by shifting the, the procurement process. We do it by being practical and solving our customers' problems. Uh, and I think that all startups in particular should be very, very, very product customer focused from the outset, even if their personal motivation and, and the company's mission is to change the world, we get there brick by brick by being practical. Yeah, that that's really great advice. Thank you. And I'm sure it's something that lots of existing businesses could be thinking more clearly about. Um, you know, companies have sort of lost sight of what customers really want. Just going back to the plastic packaging, consumers don't see any value in that. Um, and Joe Chidley from RiRi um, was, was very clear on that. And they don't really want stuff in plastic packaging. But the brands have kind of got hooked on the convenience of it and think that the convenience has to mean plastic. But as you're showing and as solutions like um, RiRi and Loop and Algramo with reusable packaging are showing, people are quite happy to try something different if it's better for them and better for the planet. And Simon, 
is there somebody that you'd recommend as a future guest for the programme? Well, I would recommend Sean Sutherland from Plastic Planet, who I think is is the most articulate uh, person in terms of explaining not just what the impact and the problems are in this space, but what the potential solutions are in this space. So I would recommend Sean for your show. Thank you. Yes, I follow Sean on LinkedIn, so um, I'm sure I'll easily be able to um, make uh, make contact with her. And if you were able to wave a magic wand overnight and, and change just one thing to make a better world, what would that be? This might get me in a little bit of trouble here, but um, the fossil fuel industry every year is subsidised to the tune of something like 700 billion a year. Now, I can tell you, give this next generation of plant-based materials 700 billion a year, and we'd be at scale and solving a lot more problems overnight. So I think what's going on at the moment is actually, uh, it's the way of the world, but uh, governments who are elected generally by us are subsidizing an industry that most of us would rather uh, is transitioning into a different place. So we are all funding business as usual. So the magic wand I would wave is that actually we all started even if we're not yet paying the real price of, of the products that we use in this space, at least we're not paying the subsidized price of the products we're, we're using in this space. Great stuff. Brilliant idea. I could definitely start a um, petition on, on that one. <laughs> and lastly, Simon, how can people find out more and get in touch with you and the team at Zampler? Well, we love talking to customers in particular, so get in touch with us at uh, zampler.com is the website and we're on Twitter and LinkedIn. So you can get in touch with us very easily in any of those areas. Thank you. And we'll put all those links in the show notes. And thanks for a really fascinating discussion. And uh, I'm kind of feeling much more optimistic than I was at the start of the day um, when we just heard about the new cabinet um, positions in the UK government. Um, so um, by the time this goes out, that'll be that'll be old news, whether they'll still be in place. Let's see. But yeah, um, I now feel much more optimistic about about the, um, our future and that of future generations. So thank you very much, Simon. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Sometimes it's easy for us to focus on simple solutions to big problems, such as the idea of banning all single-use plastics. But, as Simon explained, some of these single-use applications are providing significant benefits, such as the microcapsules to protect plant seeds, which may include plant food to help the seeds germinate. However, I'm not going to include the addition of pesticides as a benefit. There are other single-use examples that we might see as just improving convenience, like the wrappers for dishwasher tablets, which are a relatively recent innovation. It may be better to ban these, but maybe using biological polymers for these kind of applications will encourage both brands and customers to choose the biological option and reject those brands that still use petrochemical versions. A key challenge is land availability for feedstocks. So it was encouraging to hear Simon explain that Zampler is very aware of the pressures on land. As he said, Zampler doesn't want to get into a battle for resources, and it's looking to prioritise agricultural co-products where possible. That could provide new income streams to help farmers become more resilient. Simon mentioned Zampler's long-term aim to use local crops, process locally, and ideally see them ploughed back into the same local soils at the end of use. I was interested in Simon's point about changing the language on plastics and bioplastics. 
In some of my talks, I use an infographic from Zero Waste Europe that explains the key issues with bioplastics and biodegradability. I've included a link to that infographic in the show notes. Simon mentioned the pushback from the fossil products industry, which seems to see plastics and chemical recycling as an important future revenue stream. So it feels critical to develop some terminology to help everyone be clear about what's from plant-based sources and what's from fossil sources. I'd say that also needs to be legally defined. Simon mentioned the biomimicry inspiration for Thomas Knoll's original research. If you want to hear more about biomimicry, have a listen to episode 43 with Richard James McCowan of the Biomimicry Innovation Lab. So there you go, another episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our guests this week, Sam and Hombersley, and thanks also to Jacob Robinson and Charlotte Radcliffe for making the episode possible. You can find out more about Simon Hombersley and Zampler, follow them on social media, and check out all the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.